we are at an interesting, interesting stage in this particular topic of science and religion. The stage that we had seen before in past years has been uh, trying to understand exactly the imperative of understanding science from a 20th century point of view. I believe this is a manifestation of what the Ramah had said a thousand years ago, that the way to come close to God, the way to stand in awe of God, the way to stand in love of God, is by understanding Ma'aseh Bereshit, Ma'aseh Merkavat, understanding God's created world is the way that one can come close to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. That's our attempt. Our attempt is to understand the science involved, and we've read a number of different books that do in fact explain on a lay level what science is all about in order to ultimately achieve this kind of closeness. Now we'd all agree also that the person that in fact studies science from this perspective is going to come close to HaKadosh Baruch Hu in a way that a person who does not study is not going to come close to in that particular realm. Of course, there are many pathways, many derachim by which a person can come close to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And this study of science is one fashion that one can come close to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. As well, we had seen how the extraordinary nature of the universe is something which almost demands of us to come to the conclusion of a creator. Simply by knowing the universe and the full extent of the universe is something that leaves a person in a state of awe and really not really knowing which way to turn. Those of you who had seen uh, about a week or so ago, there was a special Nova presentation. Did you see it yet? Charlie? On Nova, Supernovas. I thought you had it uh, taped. Yeah, so you've seen it. It's extraordinary. Where they're now guarding, supernova is a constant in the, in the universe. A supernova explodes once every hundred years in some place in the universe. And this supernova has the energy level of five trillion, trillion atom bombs. Five trillion, trillion atom bombs. Second to the quasars, of course, which has the brightness of ten billion suns. Nevertheless, it's an extraordinary event. And the last one that just took place... They, they had calculated to be 50 million light years away, 50 million light years, which way out, out of our, our uh, Milky Way galaxy, which is only 100,000 light years long, is 50 million light years, which means it took place 50 million years ago. 50 million light years ago is what it took place. 50 million years ago to get to us, it's an extraordinary phenomenon. You look at this tape and you are spiritualized. You become more than intellectualized, you become spiritualized. I do play to show this tape at one of our sessions. When are you going to Florida? When are you going away? Intercession. Okay, well, that's so much. So we'll get to that. Okay. And so at one point, I'm going to show this in our class over here because I think it communicates well a lot of the lessons that we are trying to communicate. Harambam had seen this a thousand years ago. That the way that one can come to understand Borei Olam is through Ma'aseh Bereshit, Ma'aseh Merkabah. And of course, much of Morin Ruchim is really much about that. <coughs> Amen. Last week, we entered into a whole new area of looking at Ma'aseh Bereshit. Admittedly, the intent over here is not to understand Ma'aseh Bereshit according to Pishotosha Mikra. Pishotosha Mikra gives us a perspective and understanding as to what Ma'aseh Bereshit was all about. However, the Ramban already, on this, in his commentary there, is telling us, don't try to understand Ma'aseh Bereshit according to what we call Pishotosha Mikra. The simple meaning, welcome, good to see you. According to the simple meaning of Ma'aseh Bereshit, Rather, there's a depth to this teaching that one has the obligation of studying. And, of course, the Ramban directs us into the realm of Zohar and Kabbalah, the Ramban. And we wanted to at least open up the realm of mystical teachings in order to see how far we can stretch our imaginations, to see how far we can roam 
from Peshitosh Mikra, and yet see that it still is part of the Torah Mitzvot framework and, and area. The Zohar, of course, makes no claims at explaining Maaseh or any issue according to the simple meaning of the Torah itself. Remember that statement that we had read two weeks ago, that at the very, at the very beginning, that the Zohar insists that there are multiple dimensions and depths, many modes of interpretation to the Torah itself, and the Zohar goes, comes close to saying, woe to the, quote, woe to the person who limits Torah to the simple explanation of the Pesukim. So, of course, the Zohar is, is entering into a very tried and true rabbinic framework of Shirin Panim Torah. There are multiple interpretations of the Torah itself, <clears throat> multiple infinite facets of the Torah itself, and we are not going to limit Torah to simply the Bishotosh Mikra. Admittedly, there are many within the rabbinic realm as well who are not happy with that notion of multiple interpretation of Torah. They are concerned that you may stray too far. Really, one can ask the question, what is too far? When you study the Zohar, you may be reaching the outer limits of too farness. Because the Zohar really takes you way beyond what any of us would see as familiar Torah teachings. When one says Midrash, of course, you are straying from Peshutosh Mikra, But you are tethered to the text itself. With the Zohar, it's hard to find the tether. But I'm not against that. One should, I believe, be open to all of the facets of Torah scholarship. Zohar and mystical teachings, as you'll see today, will take you far afield. And ultimately, whatever judgment you want to make about, about the legitimacy or the validity of this particular text is up to you. From my point of view, it's nice and wonderful to be open to the many facets of the world, of the world of Torah teachings, and see where it takes me. That is, I will suspend my critical judgment as an academician when I read these texts and try to enter into these realms with an open mind, an open heart, an open soul, if you will, in order to understand what they were talking about. And at a certain point in time, I'll take a glance wood back after I've thoroughly enjoyed the experience, and then I'll see where I want to put it, academically, intellectually. But at least the very beginning, I'm going to enter into this realm trying to fully understand what the Zohar is saying about these particular issues. My intent over here is not to fully understand all that the Zohar says about Ma'aseh Bashit. Certainly it's beyond my capacity. And it takes many years of study to understand Ma'aseh Bashit and all the more so Ma'aseh Merkavah, which is based on the first chapter of Yehezkel Perik Aleph. Everybody should have learned at one point in, in his life to achieve Jewish literacy level 3, there's different levels of Jewish literacy, but level 3, at least Yehezkel Aleph Aleph. This became the background of all the mystical teachings. A number of friends of mine, one of whom is author of that book, received his PhD in Kabbalah, which means that he studied days and nights for weeks, months, and years all about mystical texts. It's an interesting issue. Uh, Professor Wolfson, Elliot Wolfson also, who is at, um, at NYU right now, also, Interestingly enough, he is somebody whose father was a rabbi, whose brothers went to YU, who went the traditional path of children of rabbis become doctors in the Ashkenazic world. Because the father said, don't become a rabbi, because it's really too tough to become that. Rabbi Wolfson was a principal in Ahiezer for, for Syrians for many years, and he told his kids, don't become rabbis, become doctors. That's really a more secure living, it's what you really want to do. One went to Harvard Medical School, one went to Cornell Medical School. Elliot was such a much more spiritual personality that that wasn't his route. And he kept searching for what's going to fill his soul. It's an interesting issue. And for a period of time, he became very non-traditional, could not keep mitzvot. He had just wandered emotionally, intellectually, 
until he found the study of Kabbalah for which he had dedicated who knows how many countless of hours studying. And of course the question is, where did he end up with this? Which I don't know. I've lost touch with him the last 18 years. But then we were friendly because of who he was and who I was. Here's a person that opened himself up to, to this and again spent a tremendous amount of energy. I recall the time when he left his wife and child to go to Hebrew University to study with Moshe Idel, who's one of the top people in the world in Kabbalah. And I said, I will never do that. I won't leave my wife and child for any academic reasons. But then, therefore, I'm not an academician. <laughs> to do so, you have to be that committed, that dedicated. I wasn't. I wasn't going anyplace. I only go around the corner without my wife and kids. Then, now maybe it's, uh, you know, now the kids get older, they get more cranky, they want more money from you, stuff like that. A little different. They send you away, right? I told you right. So, right, they, they run away, right, right, right. So, incredibly committed. And he and, and uh, Danny Matt also, very spiritual kinds of people that are in search. They're like soul, souls in search of some kind of meaning. And interestingly enough, neither one, both of whom fathers were rabbis, Neither of, them, neither of these two people found their spirituality answered in Torah Mitzvot, the way I define it. And hence they went and gave themselves over intellectually, emotionally as well, to Kabbalah, Kabbalah teachings. And again, when you're in a PhD program, you're talking about 18, 19 hours a day, complete, intensified study, six, seven days a week, for the period that you're really studying. Writing a thesis, taking your orals, it's a really intense, all-encompassing involvement. They're that committed to it. Whether or not it brought them close to Hashem or not is an interesting question that they have to answer. And they probably wouldn't want to answer the question, certainly not to me. But something that they probably think about an awful lot. So the Zohar is a study that takes many years to master. Our claim over here is not that we're going to master these, but simply to give you a range of meanings. We all know Ma'aseh Bereshit in its Pushatosh and Mikra. Less of us know how the Midrash approached Ma'aseh Bereshit very few of us know how the Zohar relates to Bereshit. And we simply want to just open ourselves up, see the range of meanings, go to the very extremities of how to interpret Maaseh Bereshit through the Zohar, and then go to the next step. The next step might be trying to see whether or not science itself may be a further commentary on Maaseh Bereshit. Maybe science is opening up another legitimate interpretation of what Hashem tells us through the Torah itself. It's an interesting suggestion that we'll see as we go along. Zohar may not be the end of interpretation, but rather only the beginning, giving us a new perspective as to Borei Olam. Now what I find interesting over here is that when you study science, a lot of the cosmic significance that emerges from a study of contemporary astrophysics and cosmology, as this program will indicate when we see it, and Charlie saw it, so I don't want to show it when he's here, but when Charlie leaves, we'll show it. You don't mind? It was really extraordinary. I saw it twice. It was really amazing. That when one sees this, not only is it spiritualizing, but also you see the contact point between the omni-significance of the universe in their perspective, as well as the Zohar. You see points of contact. In fact, one second, that is his point over here. This is the idea for the series of classes, that many, many astrophysicists are finding God to be the only answer to explaining what the universe is all about. And atheism, what they and many others see as a very simplistic answer, is not 
the answer. It's too simplistic. It's too perfect of a situation. When we had read last year The Symbiotic Universe by George Greenstein, there's too much involved and invested for it simply to be, say, to be said, this is, one can walk the face of the earth and believe in atheism. You cannot believe in atheism if you know astrophysics. Somebody once said, I think it was Francis Bacon, I'm not sure, give a man a little science, he becomes a non-believer. Give him a lot more science, he becomes a believer. And Torah, of course, Harambam says, Harambam Lichtenstein also made this interesting statement about um, 30 years ago, that Torah wants us to fully engage the mind in order to understand HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So one has to use one's mind. Using the mind is an avenue by which one comes closer to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And Danny Matt's point over here is that one can find contact points, interfaces between Hashem, between God, and astrophysics. Yeah. Uh, I think there's two different statements. But, um, one is that by appreciating the cosmos, it can come close to Hashem. Mm-hmm. That's um, a very nice point. The other point that to me is a lot more difficult, and it seems to be told here, is that um, uh, understanding science possibly possibly in Zohar and Bereshit we're going to see certain contact points maybe uh, to say that the grandeur of creation is supposed to God is very nice but to say that um, uh, reading a, a close reading of Bereshit and an in-depth reading of some of the concepts of science have connections are two totally different things wait what's two other things Same statement A and B of course you're right. That's statement number two you made. Right, statement number two. And statement number one... Absolutely correct. Two different things. Right, oh, absolutely. Right. I didn't mean to... The great, grandeur of the cosmos. Right, ...is totally different than saying that Bereshit, Master Bereshit, is talking about what science today... Um, Agreed. Absolutely correct. 100% correct. And also, good, absolutely. But, A, a close reading of Bereshit, the way I read text closely, is not going to yield any scientific conclusions. So I didn't mean to imply that. When I read text closely, I'm going to come with, into a transbiblical mode of understanding what the text really tells me. More, that's more Pshat Hashem Mikra. So I'm certainly not going to yield any science by virtue of my close reading of a text. However, when I interpose Zohar, I've left the realm of a close reading of the text. I'm going to have three pages on, on three words, none of which relates to the three words of Maaseh Bereshit. So, my game over here, or the angle over here, is that the Zohar, which is viewed as, of course, a traditional teachings, is that which is going to propel you to the scientific conclusion. Not a close reading of the text. We are going to leave the close reading of the text. Absolutely so. But the Zohar itself will be that next step or that interphase step to bring you to Big Bang. Perhaps. So you're going to therefore say to me that's illegitimate. Which I buy. But I'm not interested right now in critically analyzing neither the Zohar nor <clears throat> the text of Maaseh Bashit to agree with my conclusions. I'm asking right now just to open yourself up and see where it leads us. And here you have a 
all copying. So somebody cried. He's walk away with it. Let's always do that, these rabbis. What I'm saying to you, here's a person with a PhD from one of the finest universities in this particular field in the world. And he's saying over here, discovering the harmony between science and spirituality. His text is going to be the Zohar. As you will see, we're going to be reading his first book. His first book is on the Central Kabbalah, The Heart of Jewish Mysticism. We're going to read that right now. Right? And what he's saying over here, he's saying over here is that through Zohar reading, through other Kabbalistic texts, you are in fact finding that contact point that you are so skeptical about. It's not going to come about close reading of text. That's correct. But he's saying, open yourself up to Jewish mysticism, Kabbalah and Zohar and, and beyond. And beyond, you'll see, from Rebusha Cordovero all the way to Rav Kook. We have, have ten texts to read. And when you read this, he'll say, you'll say, wow. And try to fit this all into the framework of Ma'aseh Bereshit and what science teaches about Ma'aseh Bereshit. So this point is not really my insight. It's his insight. That, a, that reading Kabbalah brings you into consonance with science. Which is an astounding point. <clears throat> Nobody would have ever thought of making that point. But there's a person who's very interested in science, very interested in Kabbalah, spent years of his life studying both, and now says, wow, I see a corresponding point between mystical teachings and between science. Now, ha- one could go a step further and say, okay, good, this is a religious person or on some level, whatever he is, who is an academician of Kabbalah and finds a contact point. You could flip this on its side if you choose to do so next year and read Paul Davies, who's one of the world's most famous astrophysicists, who wrote a book called God and the New Physics. He's coming from exactly the opposite angle. He's coming from an astrophysical point of view saying God. He's coming from a Kabbalistic point of view and thinks I'm saying God. He's coming from exactly the opposite point of view. Now, that would be interesting and see where that takes us. And again, the claim is interesting that the more that you know about the universe, the more that people are coming close to God. When I mentioned this point to um, Ralph Sasson, I have a number of books on the universe itself, that, just extraordinary books with the, with the photography nowadays, from the Hubble Telescope, just extraordinary stuff. You see, a, um, you see uh, let's say, it looks like a large cloud, but it's 300, it's 300 million light years long of stars. 300 million light years. I mean, that's 300 million times 6 trillion. And that's what it is. That's the universe. It's, in this galaxy, there's 100 billion stars as the sun is. There's, um, there's a trillion billion stars out there, all which, some of which have planets, which may have a lot of the life on it. All these are interesting questions that one can raise from the Torah point of view, from the Kabbalah point of view, from the science point of view. So, does one come to that conclusion? The more that we know, the closer we are. Ralph Sasson says, no, this will bring you to heresy which is true 50 years ago or 40 and 30 years ago, for a person who was uneducated scientifically, you say, this is heretical. The average student guys tell you, this is heretical, don't study it. I think the more enlightened person reads more of this, give a person more knowledge, and it becomes a believer. It's an, almost what I would say, an inescapable conclusion. Whereas atheism becomes out, because it doesn't make sense any longer. When you read books like this, so this is not me saying it. This is George Will, the article that we read three, four weeks ago, saying this. Saying, wow. My only point is, the wow is one good point. Saying that there are contact points in the Zohar. And? I bet you there are a lot of people... But I'm not saying it. He's saying it. I'm not, I'm not directing it. I'm directing it at the book. Okay. There are a lot of people... Agreed. find a lot of contact points in the Zohar for a lot of things. 
I don't know that for a fact, but just knowing how vast and involved the Zohar is, I'm sure there are a lot of PhDs written about the Zohar pointing to X, meaning here he's pointing to the creation. There are a lot of things you can read in text. Good. So that's your job here is to see right. how far is he reading into it. Right. So we have to say the author of the Zohar, it's, it's a good thing, the author of the Zohar, do we say that it was written with the knowledge of what the universe is? Sa- you could see. I, I, we'll see what you, if you say wow. Forget Bible code. Bible code's wrong. Okay, so that's your job. In words What's not there? The Agreed. It's what you're saying, of course so we agree. Of course we agree. No. Not with the premise. With the conclusion. If he reads, if he isogizes into the Zohar text, or if I do, stop us at that point, and you won't catch me doing it. You certainly won't. But stop us, me or it at that point and say this is reading into it. As we did when we read Avi Ezra's book on Genesis, Genesis and the Big Bang. If you recall, he was able to correspond. So he has a PhD in MIT, as we said, in, in cosmology, astrophysics. We read, we read Bereshit, he raised five questions, and he said science corresponds to it. And he reinterpreted Obashit allegorically and metaphorically and madrashically. Okay, so we were, I was upset about that. So of course I'm very sensitive to that. And we will not let him or me get away with that. So of course I agree with that point. Nevertheless, we still want to open ourselves up and see, is there a wow here or not? There may or may not be a wow. Right? That's what you want to see? Okay. Good. Sorry? Yeah, and both of the books. We read both books at the same time. Uh, very close. Creation and uh, Big Bang. Creation and Big Bang. Aviezer and Schroeder. Okay, let's see. Let's see what it takes us. Now, last week we had looked very quickly at the opening Zohar, Bereshit. I'll look at it again very quickly. Of course, I didn't make any more copies. Cause that's the way I am. I'm, I'm just going to read this very quickly, just to review that point. I believe we read it last week. Before we go on, that's page one, and here's page two of the Zohar. And see, again, Eli, my main point over here, and I didn't really, I'm not that concerned about reading into as I'm concerned about seeing the extent and expanse of Jewish commentary. My point was really, if Zohar takes me to the outer limits and science is less extreme than that, then science becomes a, another commentary that might shed light on Maser Bereshit. Right? You see what I'm saying? That was my main Zohar point. Can do it, saying, then science can do it as well. I want to incorporate science as a religious discipline. Right. That's a possible approach. Possible approach. Science is not my enemy, in other words. Allah Rambam and Sa'aja and Shabir Hanagid and Havot Alevavot, science is my ally, not my enemy. For the last hundred years, and still in this community and other communities, science is the enemy. Keep away from it. I'm saying exactly the opposite. If science is teaching me something that's true, that Hazamosh HaKashvaruch Emet, God sees the truth, then I follow it. As the Rambam taught, we had seen this in years past, in Morena Bukhim, part 2, chapter 25. What does Rambam say about eternity of the universe? You follow it if it's true. If it's proven, it's true, you follow it. Case closed. Right? That's what one has to do. Saying the same thing right now. The active engagement in the study of science a thousand years ago, where nobody did it, and Rama says one should do it, all the more so now, I am saying we should do it, and see where the chips fall. 
If it's true, we have to believe it and we have to figure out what's trans all about then. If it's false, I don't have to worry about it. My argument over here is to worry about the heretical implications of it is absurd. When everybody's doing it, every Tuesday in the Science Times, you're seeing this. There are uh, television programs all that. What about if a kid sees Supernova and says, wow, 3 million light years away? What does that mean in terms of Torah? You as a Baalabite, me as a rabbi, have to be able to see, figure out what's the perspective, what's going on over here. We can't simply ignore it any longer. The approach of Ralph Sasson and others, I don't say it's negatively at all, he's from a different generation, who says, don't read it, don't study it, close the book, I'm afraid of it, should not be our approach. I'm not afraid of it. Why should I be afraid of it? To the contrary, it may have contact points to Maaseh Bereshit. How God created the world is a secret. And could we say that God wants us to figure out that secret, how God created the world? If we say yes to that, then the Zohar is an attempt at saying yes to that, and modern science is another yes to that. Especially in this interesting program where they've discovered that what should have happened is that the universe, as a result of the Big Bang, exploded, correct? And because of the nature and amount of matter in the universe, should eventually contract. Right? It's not happening. What's happening is that the universe is exceeding its speed limits. It's going further out. Can't figure it out. So the... Right? So what they're saying now is that now they've come to a conclusion besides the dark matter of the universe, 99% which of which is dark matter, with all that matter, it should be contracting. We're not contracting. Something now called dark energy. A whole new story that is not made of atoms and molecules. Everything in the universe serves as that with that continuum. From this table to Charlie Samach's pie and even Charlie Samach himself are all made of atoms. Correct? Everything in the universe is made of atoms. Everything, period. Except for this dark energy. What is this dark energy? Nobody knows. But it's the only way that one can explain why the universe is accelerating rather than decelerating. Einstein posited this notion, called it the cosmological constant. He said, it's the stupidest thing I ever said. It's all wrong. Now they're finding out 40 years later that he was right. You need to have this cosmological constant called dark energy to explain this phenomenon. Interesting. Where will it take us? I don't know. But we'll see. Okay, very quickly. At the outset of emanation, the decision of the king made a tracing in the supernal effulgence, a lap of scintillation, and there issued within the impenetrable recesses of the mysterious, limitless, a shapeless nucleus, enclosed in a ring, neither white, nor dark, nor red, nor green, nor any color at all. You have to raise the question, where did he get this from? Now, I can read this to you in the original Aramaic, but I feel that it will not be any more comprehensible than the English. We agree. You could read it with the push of the Sulam, which I have in my office as well. So, too. This is the most comprehensible that's going to get. And what does it really mean? At the outset, decision of the king, not Elohim, interestingly. This is a commentary on Bereshit, Aleph, Pasuk, Aleph. The king made a tracing in the supernal effulgence, a lamp or a light of scintillation, and there issued within the impenetrable recesses of the mysterious, a shapeless nucleus or vapor, Ruach Elohim, enclosed in the ring of the white, etc. When he took measurements, he fashioned colors to show within. Within the lamp, there issued a certain influence from which colors were imprinted below. Why is he saying this? Where is this coming from? Are questions that one could ask. The most mysterious power 
enshrouded in the limitless clave, as it were, without cleaving its void, remaining wholly unknowable until from the force of the strokes there is shown forth a supernal and mysterious point. Beyond that point there is no knowable and therefore it is called the Reshit beginning, the creative utterance which is the starting point of all. Right? Right. What are we talking about? It is written, And the intelligent shall shine like the brightness of the firmament and they turn away to the righteous like the stars forever and ever. There was indeed a brightness, Zohar, most mysterious struck its void and caused this point to shine. This beginning then extended and made for itself a palace for its honor. Whose honor? Elohim's honor and glory. There it sowed a sacred seed which was to generate for the benefit of the universe and to which may be applied the scriptural words the holy seed is a stock thereof. Could the seed be the black hole from which the Big Bang emerged? But I didn't just say that because Eloy would be upset if I connected these two together. So I didn't just say that. I just wanted to plant it, plant the seed in your minds, but I didn't say it. I'm sorry? We spoke about... Yeah, a bit. A bit, I'm sorry? You can catch up. Again, there was Zohar. In that it sowed a seed for its glory, just as the silkworm closed itself, as it were, in a palace of its own production with both youthful and youthful and noble and beautiful. Thus, by means of this beginning, the mysterious unknown made this palace. The palace is called Elohim. Look how striking that is. How dare the Zohar make that statement. The palace is called Elohim. Not what we usually understand to mean the word Elohim. The stockness contained the words by, by means of the beginning created Elohim. Bereshit bara Elohim. Be, in the point of departure, Reshit was created Elohim. There's nobody in all the traditional commentaries that would make this statement. That Elohim was a result of the creation from that point called Reshit. So your limits of understanding or at least of interpretation, have been expanded by this one line in the Zohar. The Zohar is that from which were created all the creative utterances through the extension of the point of this mysterious brightness. It's interesting how the Zohar has seen light as the primordial force by which ultimately the universe is created. Of course, that is what the Big Bang is all about. Nor need we be surprised at the use of the word creator's connection, seeing that, next page, we read further on, and God created man in his image. So God creates, so this creation over here. A further esoteric interpretation of the word Bereshit is as follows. The name of the starting point of all is Ehyeh. that's the starting point. Of course, the word Ehyeh means in its Hebraic origin. Where does Ehyeh come from? What does it mean? I will be. The verb to be. Ehyeh Nobody knows what it really means. So those say that it means I will be that which I will be, but if you look at the translation, we'll say that it means I am that I am. Is God becoming or is God is? Is an interesting question. What really is the nature of God? Which is one of the concerns of the Zohar. Some will explain, is the hifil form. I am he who caused all of creation to take place. It's, the, it's an ancient hifil form of the verb to be. So he's saying, is the starting point. The holy name, when inscribed at its side, is Elohim. Follow this along. The holy name is Elohim. But when inscribed by circumspection, between the two of years. Hi. Hi. Good day. Hi. What do you want to get? To what? To well, we'll buy it. I don't want to get my copy. Oh, that's good. There it is. It's, if you walk in. Okay. Sorry. 
One of the balloons? Yeah. Take whatever you like, Mordechai. You're the rabbi's kid. <laughs> a lot of drawbacks also. All right. Who knows what kids grow up with? You know, but they have to go. So rabbis can get something out of it. Whenever I go to an affair Saturday night, David May comes to me. He says, "Would you want anything?" So, no, no. so once my kid said, "Bring home some deli sandwiches." So I, I went there. I said, "Look, you have some extra, you know, bologna salami deli." He says, "Yeah, absolutely." And they, I said, "He said, well, I said my kids really want me to bring home some." He says, oh, he starts laughing and laughing. I said, "Why are you laughing?" There? He says, "Because his father was a caterer, and he used to be away often at night, Saturday nights and nights and weekends. So his father used to always bring him home deli sandwiches, which was a hashuv thing." to make him happy that his father wasn't home. So he just started living. And since then, this is two years ago, whenever we were wedding at night, he gives me a whole platter of deli sandwiches I bring home my kids are happy that I went to the wedding. So they got all them kind of stuff. So some benefits, being a rabbi's kid. Okay, he asked that, yeah, the holy, name, the holy name when inscribed at its side is Elohim. When inscribed at its side, but when, ins- one second, by inscribed by circumstance, when in- inscribed at its side, eh, yeah, is Elohim. I don't know. When inscribed by circumscription, footnote one below, between the two years, you have the word Elohim as well. Sorry? Asher, right. Asher is Asher, right. The hidden name of the recognized temple, the source of that which is mystically called the Ashit. The word Asher, the letters, is anagrammatically Rosh, the beginning which issues from Reshit. So, when the point and the temple were firmly established together, that's the point the seed and the, the temple the palace which we called Elohim then Bereshit combined the supernal beginning with wisdom now you have something that I, there's two things over here that I'm, one I'm not going to show you because it's too scary the other this is the Sefirot the Zohar also could not see where the infinite could create the finite therefore there's a series of emanations the same way the sun emanates it's light rays the Zohar often uses the sun as an analogy the sun emanates, so too. And this is the Rambam also talks about emanations. Rambam was a Neoplatonic Aristotelian, combining these two together, where he takes the Aristotelian forms and neos, uses these emanational ideas in order to explain this, but not, certainly not the Zohar fashion at all, but he uses the word emanation. And it starts with Keter, Chokhmah, all this is the emanations of God, going from the infinite to ultimately down below the finite. There is a concept in the Zohar called Adam Kadmon. Adam Kadmon, again, I, didn't, I, I have photos that, but I don't want to show it to you because it's too scary, which shows, Adam Kadmon is not Adam Harishon. Adam Kadmon is the picture of a human being, of a person, which the Zohar portrays, and the Rosh, his head is close to the Keter. It's the same as this, but it's superimposed upon this. And then he goes through the whole Adam, right hand, left hand, Chesed, Geburah, Rachamim, and all that, and it shows the whole Adam superimposed upon Maaseh Bereshit. That's called... Sorry? Then I said the same thing. Yes. Yeah, that this way as well. Then which we read. We actually read it. When I was in high school, I read it every single morning. So it's all that. Right, correct. So there's a right of so all that. I didn't want to show because it really is a jarring image. It just Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. That is well something else called Shi'ur Koma where the Zohar, in a later text, talks about the dimensions of God, which is, we can't deal with these ideas. Now, it is true, whatever the Zohar, or Kabbalah, sorry, in Kabbalah in general, gives with one hand, it takes with the other, by saying that all that I've said to you is only a metaphor, which is a fair statement. So it's almost saying that this is a metaphor, and if you grasp it and comprehend it, 
fine, but it really is not what you think it actually is. Which is a, an interesting statement. Almost saying, the Rambam in Morin Bukhim, his introduction, talks about how you grasp, how do you grasp the infinite? It's only through, it gives you an analogy, only through analogy and metaphor can you grasp this knowledge. And it's only if you're sitting in a darkened room and all of a sudden you have an, a blinding light for a second. Then you grab something. I got it. And then it leaves you. Moshe Rabbeinu lived in a constant state of insight. We don't have it. Now you may or may not have ever experienced this. I experienced it once. Where I was trying, I was in graduate school, I remember very well, doing more than and I was trying to understand the concept of oneness beyond the num- numerical number one. And I felt I grasped it and lost it. And whatever that means, I don't know what that means. But I felt I had this insight as to what the absolute oneness beyond number. God is not one which precedes number two. Beyond oneness of two. It's beyond enumeration. From the Ramah's point of view. So the oneness of Shema Yisrael, which Ramah does not quote in Oman and Why? It's the most important passage in the Torah, one could say. Monotheism. Shema Yisrael. Why does it quote? Why does Ramah quote it? Because it really does not reflect the absolute nature of the oneness of God. It's almost if you have to enter into the realm of imaginary numbers to understand the oneness of God. Go beyond what the numerical one really stands for. Because one implies two to you. No, the oneness of God is beyond, is beyond that number which implies two. Right? So not first which implies second. So, what it says over here is, Reshit is the Rosh, is the head. Beginning which issues from Reshit. So, when the point is made away from, and the past firmly it together, then Reshit combined the two beginning with wisdom. That's the Sefirot. After the character of that, temp- that past was changed and it was called house, bait. The concept of this with the supernal point which is called Rosh gives Bereshit. Bait, Bet, Bereshit, the Bait, and the Reshit, and the Rosh, which is the name used so long as the house was uninhabited. When, however, it was sown with seed to make it habitable, it was called Elohim, shocking statement, hidden and mysterious. Zohar was hidden and withdrawn so long as the building was within, and yet to bring forth, and the house was extended only so far as to find room for the Holy Seed. Before it had conceived and had extended sufficiently to be habitable, it was not called Elohim, but all was still included in the term Bereshit. That seed, that point, that point of singularity that scientists speak about the trillionth of a second before the Big Bang, when all of the matter of the universe, which is quite a lot, was all at that point tightly packed together into one point. That's the way scientists see the moment, the trillionth of a moment before the Big Bang. All of matter, tightly packed together. Then, of course, as he goes through this whole thing again, which we've done before, but we know it already, but he says and he ex- explains that infinite, you have infinite matter, quote-unquote, tightly packed together into that one little point, then you have the Big Bang, which if it's true, which I don't know how we could even believe the statement, is still exploding outwardly 12 or 13 billion years later. It's an absurd statement. It's sort of like if you believe that one, buy the Brooklyn Bridge from me. Because how could one believe that? It's incomprehensible. But indeed, that is the nature of God. If that's what God's all about, then that's what God's all about. Science will bring you closer to understanding what God's all about by the virtue of its incomprehensibility. It's interesting how people have always said that if you study Zohar, you find it too fantastic, too comprehensible, that you're 40 years old and mature and everything else to study Zohar and Kabbalah in general. Right? It's a harem against studying this in a serious fashion until you reach a certain age of maturity and understanding. We've gone through that. But really, science is saying the same thing. 
science brings you to that point of incomprehensibility as well. You read the scientific tracks, you say, this can't be. That amount of energy, and I've used the word that a quasar is 10 billion suns of light at that one moment of brightness. And that's not, that's not talking about the, um, the Big Bang. It's only a quasar, which is a... Oh. Yes, you found it? Yes, David, may I take one for you, if you want one. Okay. And the balloon. And the balloon. Okay. Sorry? Hopefully not. <laughs> Hopefully not. Right. You need a button to press the on the record, off the record. Yeah, it's supposed to work that way. It doesn't work that way. I tried to do that. If I turn this off, the tape doesn't go off. It doesn't stop. Oh, but go, oh, okay, good. So, pretend tape that I turned you off whenever you didn't want to hear what I had to say. Right. 18 minutes. Hi, see that's what happened. Hi. So when you read, when you read the when you read the scientific things, and you read, I've read dozens of these things in the last four or five years, which is it's a passion of my own. Not only is it spiritual, but it's also incomprehensible, also unimaginable. You and you see these statements, and you read these books, and you read these numbers. Who are you kidding? It's utterly incredible. When we read that factor in um, two, in Schroeder's book, that. There are 10 to the 23rd power atoms uh, of carbon in the universe. And to have random collision to create life, you need much more than that in order to create life, given the odds. Can't be. He says mathematically it's impossible to have random collision of odds and to make, you know, the, the, the complexity of a human being. And that, and also Greenstein's book, where he talks about the perfection of the proton and the electron, where if it were 1% off, everything would explode. If it was 1 billionth of a percent off, everything would explode. Because there's so many atoms to, a, to an item, to a person, to a table, to a planet. If it was 100 billionth of a percentage off, the world cannot exist. Cannot exist. So, the precision with which the balance of the proton and the electron were so perfect that it's not 100 billionth of a percentage off. That's absurd. It's that perfect. And again, Greenstein's book, which talks about the, which if you recall, the anthropic principle, which says this is just too perfect to be accidental. It is virtually, literally impossible for all of this to have taken place accidentally. Anybody with any seichel says that. Now, remember, Greenstein is a good friend of mine in that. He's not a believer because he's a very superficial, theologically inclined person. He, his view of, of religion is Christianity and says this is dumb and I can't deal with this. So, of course, we understand where he's coming from. He's not a very profoundly theological person. Not everybody who is good in science is necessarily good in theology or in philosophy. To the contrary, often, both skills are really very different. So, it doesn't always work that way. So, his science is extraordinary. Ph.D., Yale, Stanford, Princeton, Y.U. Yes, Y.U. was in there too. He did all, towards all those places. Brilliant mind. On the other hand, he didn't really see the whole picture. So, he couldn't explain all of this, except by saying, the universe itself did that which was necessary to bring forth life down the road 14 billion years later. 
from the way Greenstein puts it. We have to buy his conclusion. But it's an extraordinary book to read to see how extraordinarily precise everything in the universe actually is. I'm sorry, Rabbi. So, sure. I didn't understand here that maybe there's a problem with the translation. I didn't really understand. Rashid is coming from Rosh and Bait. But it doesn't say which came first. First it was called Rosh and then it became, when it was connected to the Bait, it became Bereshit. Or first it was Bereshit and then it separated into Rosh and then Bait. It it's not that clear. So I, I think that's the Zohar. We can look it up, but again, I don't think it'll... A, in terms of time, and B, in terms of the uh, clarity, it'll be very difficult. Yeah, I understand that the Barashit is combined from Rosh and Bayit, but it doesn't exactly say which one is first. It says it creates the beginning, which came from the beginning with wisdom, and afterwards it would change was called how? If we look... It was called Bayit. So which one? Which one came first? The Rosh? I would say the, the, the point came first. Asher, which is really the Rosh. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going, if I read it very carefully, but I don't know how valuable it is to read this very carefully. But the word Asher, Alashinresh, from the word, is, is Rosh. Right. So, so the beginning which is from Rosh. Right. So you have Rosh. So that's the Reshit. That's the point. And only later on was the palace this built out of that Reshit. As he said before, above, that first you had... The palace is the Bait, I think. Right. But I understood that, that they, but since they were both at the beginning, they were all together. There was the Rosh and the First Bait Rosh. No, the, no, no. Which is above. The beginning, uh, the page before, in the beginning, and the Tel there was indeed a brightness. The Mosiris stuck its struck its void and caused the point to shine. That's the Big Bang exploding. So, sorry, Eli, I didn't mean to say that. That was the point to shine. That's the beginning, singularity. Then extended and made for itself then a palace for its glory and, and honor. And that is what calls Elohim. So first, at the point is Rosh is beginning. And then comes the Bible's way I understood it. Then it uses the Vavakera. The further esoteric interpretation, is, this is different. You cannot, you cannot reconcile the two interpretations because there are two different ways. This one says that when the, when the creation, the, the place is called Elohim. And this That's is, later on. That's later on. And, and, this is, and, this says, and this says that the beginning was Bait. The beginning was, was Barashit. It encompassed everything. And then when it was formed, when the palace was formed, then it became Rosh. And then it was later tra- 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 uh, it was later transformed into bite. Now the word rosh is in between bet of bite and yudin top of bite. Yes, that's what I understand. The question is, does the word you can say? First of all, you start off with the all-encompassing thing. You say you start off, let's say, with an um, an embryo, which no, is the stu- each each cell is uh, is general, and then the. Specialized, right. or you can, so you say here also that the Bereshit was all encompassing until it becomes specialized. You had the, the breakup between the Rosh and the Bait, or you first you say that first we had a Rosh, which is not an individual, and then they join to become Bereshit. Mm-hmm. So that's, I, that's it's it's not clear. Not, not clear. I agree that it's not clear, but it, it's starting point. The starting point of all is a here. There's another, so, uh, so the, right, well, yeah, I don't, but okay. The holy name when inscribed at its side is Elohim, whatever that means. I didn't, I didn't understand either. When inscribed by circumscription is Asher, the hidden under the temple, agreed, it's just difficult to understand. Yeah. When Halloween was started with the may called Elohim, hidden and mysterious. It was always hidden and withdrawn so long as it was in the and the house was in the room. Before it had conceived and extended sufficiently to be, however, it was not called Elohim, but always still included in the term Bereshit. I'd acquire the name. Now, one more paragraph. What is this seed, the starting point? It consists of graven letters. Remember Sefer Yetzirah. It's a work that was written between the 3rd and the 7th or 8th century, which is one of the first of the Kabbalistic works. 
academically, Sefer Bahir is the first of the Kabbalistic works. Then comes the Zohar, which included earlier material. But prior to that is Sefer Yitzirah, which shows how the letters themselves have a living power to them that Hashem used to create the world. Whatever that means, of course, I don't know. But that's Sefer Yitzirah, which Sa'aj Ga'on, Rabbi Yudavar Zilai, all wrote commentaries on Sefer Yitzirah earlier on. Because these are the graven letters, the signatures of the Torah, which issued from the first point. Torah preceded Ma'aseh Bereshit. That point sowed in the palace certain three vowel points, which combined with one another and formed one entity to it, the voice, call, right, that's call, which issued through its their union. When this voice, call, Bidvar Hashem Shemaim Na'asu, so he's playing on that pasuk. So you raise the question, what came first, is concept or is pasuk? My answer would be that he took these pasukim, that he all dealt with Maaseh Bereshit, and he tried to create a theory that satisfied all these pasukim. When this voice issued, they're issued with, with it, it's mate, strikingly, which comprises all the letters. Hence it's written, Et HaShemayim, the voice and its mate. Et, by the way, Et HaShemayim, the voice and its mate. This voice indicated by the word heaven is the second year of the sacred name. This voice indicated by the word Et HaShemayim, Shemayim is voice, is the second year of the sacred name. The Zohar which includes all letters and occults in this manner. Up to this point, the words, the Lord our God, the Lord, I mean, Hashem, Elokeinu Hashem, three grades correspond to this deep mystery of Bereshit Barayuhim. Three grades of mystery, three names of God. Bereshit represents the primordial mystery. Bara represents the mysterious source from which the whole expanded. Bara, therefore, is not a, a verb, but it's the source, the noun. The source from which the whole expanded. I think the word expanded is an interesting word in this context as well. It represents the force which sustains all below. The word Elohim in Hebrew means strength, force, or power. As the Gemara called the Amim Gevar. Whoever is stronger, whoever is stronger gets it. So Elohim means power or source, or force, force. So Bara means source, Elohim represents the force which sustains all below. The word that Shemaim indicates that the two latter are on no account to be separated, and are male and female together. The word is of the letters Aleph and Taf, which include between them all the letters, Aleph and Taf, as being the first and last of it. Afterwards, He was added, so that all the letters would be attached to He. And this gave the name Ata. Hence we read, Ata, Hayat Kulam. You give life, the Ata. This is extraordinary, what you would call creative exegesis. Philologically, he's creating based on putting things together to get this Pasuk. Hayat Kulam. You are the source and the force that gives life to all. It again alludes to Adonai, which is so-called. Hashemayim is, and it's high significance. The next word, the it, indicates the firm union of male and female. It also alludes to the appellation of the Hashem. Most of us are coming to the same thing. Ha'aretz, Elohim, corresponding to the higher form. This name is here found in all three applications. That's the same name, branch after the So now, one can go on and on with what all this means. I found it interesting. I didn't see this for the next page, page 66. Now, the earth had been void and without form. What's the pasuk? Right? The word Hayata being a pluperfect what does pluperfect mean? Not in the past, but before the past. It's had had been, so to speak, right? Pluperfect. Had been is past. Right, had had been somehow. So what is it?
No, past is he ate. Plus perfect would he had eaten. It's too perfect. He had eaten. It's too perfect. Ha- past is he ate. Had eaten. Oh, okay, that could be right. Past perfect, right. Yeah. One second. Right. So, we'll see. This is says, There was snow in the midst of water. Now, why does that strike my fancy? Snow. Snow. No. No. Good point. Good. No. That's incredible. How do you remember that? That's astounding. I wrote an article. Well, I wrote I wrote an article for because I had to because Ovadia was the editor of the school newspaper, and about what does snow really mean. So I, it only appears four times in Tanakh. That was the easiest you know word to write. About, so I wrote snow. Then I said I'll give a Chinese dinner to whoever understands and knows what, what the snow signifies in Morei Nebuchim. Right? Morei Nebuchim. The Rambam uses the word snow to quote the Midrash that Akedat Baruch created the world out of Shelek Kadmon, out of the Shelek that was the foot of the Kisei Kavod, the snow. So what does that mean, Rambam? He quotes it in the same context as Plato having noted that God fashioned the earth from a primordial, eternal matter. Hylic matter. Well, that's Aristotle's word. But that's the... Rambam also quotes it, by the way. Also, Rambam quotes the Hiuli, Hylic matter, which from which they created the world. Eternal matter. So the, the Rambam says that he believes in absolute beginning. But he all the, but either way, quotes Plato and Aristotle's opinions that it was eternal matter. And he says that might correspond to the Midrash that Hashem created the world from the snow, which is eternal matter in that context. So then I found this earlier. There, were, there was snow in the midst of water from the action which was produced a slime. Then a mighty fire beat upon it and produced in it a refuse. So it was transformed and became Tohu. The abode of sun, the nest of refuse. And Bohu, formlessness. The finer part which was sifted from the Tohu and Bohu. Darkness. The word darkness in the text alludes to this mighty fire. Now, again, when you recall the teaching of the Big Bang, the temperatures at the point of the Big Bang were so extraordinary. Now, remember, the core of the sun is about a million degrees. So, we're talking about multiples of that temperature, so much so that the atoms could not even separate until what happens? So it will cool down after 300,000 years in order for the atoms. And then light emerges from the darkness. The, the darkness is a physical darkness. It's Hoshik Mamashut, Mamashi. Physical darkness, which is really so scientific it's scary. Darkness is physical. And only when it cools down from the mighty fire, then it, light emerges because then the, the atoms can be formed in protons, etc. So this finds a lot over here. Spirit of God refers to... Okay, that, all that is from this. We can read on and on this. Understanding little, that's true, but also, I think, intrigued by it. Let's look a little bit more at some other of these contexts. First, the hidden light. This is page... 90. Give that out, please. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Around. And you also will need the footnotes. Two. Okay, just read this one at a time. Let's try to understand exactly what is this concept that the Zohar is hinting at. And those of you who are very unhappy with Kabbalistic teachings, two. The hidden light. Just look at the hidden light. And the second one is, is the um, hidden light 
Footnotes on top of its creation. Did I give you the wrong? No, I, no you don't. No, take a what did I just give you? Page 192 we have. You should have page 90. You have page 90? Yeah, 90, 91. 90? 192. It should be 192. Sorry. Here's 192. Give back 192. Yes, please. Here's 192. Here's 192. You should have 90 and 192. Here's 192. I think somebody just took and gave them out. Can't trust anybody nowadays. Okay, we're on the same page so far? I want... You should have 90 and 192. Okay, good. I, I want you to be okay with it. And there's a tether there. I mean, there's and there's a tether. Yeah, absolutely. I, I played my worst card to to set you up for you to say what you said. It's pretty sharp on my foot, I have to admit. Right? I mean, it's sheets that I shared. No, it's not. But it's creative philology, if you're going to call it that. At the very, at the very minimum, is what it is. Okay, we're on page 90. Now, where are we getting this from? This is from the Zohar. He didn't like it. I guess not. You walk into darkness. Wait till you walk out. It's darkness. You'll see. This is from the Zohar. Now, these readings, I'm going to start with the Zohar and then go for four or five hundred year, uh, years into the present test of Rav Kook. We're still going with the Zohar, okay? That's what he has over here. But we'll start with the hidden light. This is from the Zohar. Your footnote tells you from the Zohar, chapter 1, 31b, right? 30th century, right? That's the footnotes on page 193. The footnotes to what page 90 found on page 193. Are we understand? Right, see what I'm talking about? Okay. God said that there be light, and there was light. God saw how good the light was, and God saw the light from the darkness. Which is interesting. The rich type said the light created by God in the act of creation flared from one end of the universe to the other and was hidden away. Rich Hak said this. Reserved for the righteous in the world that is coming, as written, Or Zaru al Asadik has a pasukum tehilim, Or Zaru al Asadik Ushulisimcha. Light which is sown, that was sown for the righteous. The Pasuk Mi says, Light is sown for the righteous. Then the worlds will be fragrant and all will be one. But until the world that is coming arrives, it is stored and hidden away. Right? That's the first paragraph. Yes. Famous Midrashic motif that the light was so brilliant and so wonderful that God had to hide it because nobody, once Adam sinned, it was inappropriate to have. The Zohar that we read on, on when a Brit Milah takes place, right, we also make reference to this exact teaching that Adam HaRishon saw from one end of the universe to the other, from one end, and he saw what's always going to be. Now you have to raise the question, why did the Baal HaZohar, whoever it was, whenever it was written, we don't have exactly, we don't exactly know what it was, why did he say that? What did he gain by that? Is there a textual motif which gives birth to that notion that Adam through this light had seen it? We agree it's not in the text of the Torah, of Bereshit. Or is it? Can one say that you have light, ye or, then I have what? I have light on the fourth day of the sun. So the text itself really indicates there are two lights. The light of divine ye or, and the light of the sun. So right in the very beginning, that gives an opening to the Baalei Midrash and to the Baalei Zohar and Kabbalah to make a distinction between these two lights. What? I'm sorry? Yes. 
That's what one of the other books had said, but I'm trying to stick with these now. But you're right, yes. Yeah, pure energy. Pure energy versus the sunlight. Exactly. One could interpret that way. Which is also an interesting idea. Let's look at the footnotes for a second. Footnotes, 193. Let it be light, just one, three, four. Lights of with the light created by God, first the animals could gaze and see from one end of the universe to the other. Now again, I got why there's two lights, but why tell me that? Why was Adam given this great power of seeing from one end to the other end? Now, of course, those of you who read the Zohar when you had a son, right? Remember that what happened when Adam saw? Adam saw that David HaMelech is going to die. And therefore, what did Adam do? Adam gave 70 years and rather than living a thousand years, there's 930 years. And therefore, David got 70 years from Adam HaRishon. What's go- Why is the Midrash saying that? That's Midrash. Why is Midrash saying that? Why was the Midrash so surprised? What web is it weaving that to say David was going to die, Adam saw it and therefore took away from his thousand years to End up with 9.30. As the Madras saying that the man created by God is perfect and therefore should live a thousand years. So a thousand years would have been appropriate. Nobody was a thousand years, right? So not so. Why not? So is Madras trying to solve that exegetical problem? Finds David having sinned with Bathsheba. Therefore, he should not have come to the world because he sinned the way he sinned. And therefore, had to come to the world because God gave him, or Adam Rishon gave him 30, uh, 70 years and ended up with 930. Is that the genesis, excuse the word, of the Midrash? One has to think hard and long and not to dismiss this. What went into the mind of that Baal Midrash to create, and we read it all the time in the Zohar. Next time you see it, look at the Zohar. And try to figure out what gave rise to that Adam having these powers one might look let's say into the surrounding environment and literatures the Greek and Roman literature sometimes that gives you a source as to why a Midrash is born many examples of that which we won't go to right now it could be another Pasuk is there any Pasuk that's going to give Adam that kind of power the answer is no there's no Pasuk that we know about so one has to really exhaust all of one's resources to try to figure out why is the Midrash saying that, and again, this is taken up over here, in the Kabbalah as well, or could have been that the Kabbalah got it from the Dutch, but the Dutch got it from Kabbalah. Nobody's quite sure what came first necessarily. Either way, the question still is there, what's the source of that thought? The person who wrote that, the Bihuda, is a rational person, something is disturbing him, and one could solve the mystery of this Midrash, which takes a lot of time to do so, either literarily or conceptually or historically not polemically in this context. I don't think there's any polemical issues involved in the same way that I don't think there's any, uh, any uh, contemporary literature that would have said this. My reading of Greek and Latin literature doesn't have any of these notions that Adam had this power to see from one end to the other end. Why even say that? So you have to raise that question. But again, you could go back to the Zohar and you could see the context and try to figure out that issue. Adam could gaze and see from one end to the other because God foresaw the corrupt deeds of the generation of Enosh and flood. He hid the light from them. Where did he hide it? The Garden of Eden. For the righteous were in Ozer al-Sadiq. Before the world was created in the book of Bahir, which is the earliest Kabbalistic source, 11th century, before the world was created, an impulse arose in the divine mind to create a great shining light. 
The light so bright was created that no creature control, could control it or could bear it. When God saw no one could bear it, he took one-seventh and gave it to them in its place. Interesting idea. Shabbat is viewed as me'en olam haba. Me'en olam haba, Shabbat is viewed as a taste of the world to come. Shabbat comes every seventh day. So Shabbat is one-seventh of the week and you get one-seventh of this pure light that you enjoy on Shabbat. Shabbat is that which gives you an insight into Lamba. The rest eat away for the righteous at the time to come, saying, if they prove worthy of the seventh, and God, I will give them the rest in the final world. Okay, interesting point. And this is something I want you to think about a little bit more to try to get sense out of this. Next statement. The people that respond, he wasn't happy. If light were completely hidden, the world would not exist for even for a moment. He views, his philosophical, scientific view is that there needs to be an energy that sustains life in the world. Rats hidden so like a seed that gives birth to seeds and fruit. Thereby the world is sustained. Every single day a ray, of that, a ray of that light shines into the world, keeping everything alive. So interesting. With that ray, God feeds the world. And, every, so this is the, and everywhere that Torah is studied at night, one thread thin ray appears from that hidden light and flows down upon those absorbed in her. Since that first day, the light has never been fully revealed, but is vowed to the world, renewing each day the act of creation. She would say in the prayer book. We don't know. Oh, they're absolute people. No, they're absolute people. According to Zohar, you would think that they're Imoraim. But it's tough to date any of this material. So it's... Rabbi Yitzhak. Notice that Rashi begins his first commentary with Rabbi Yitzhak as well. So it's difficult to know. Parenthetically, there is a Rabbi Yitzhak who was blind, Seginehor, who was known in the uh, 12th or 13th century who brought the Zohar from the eastern part of the world to the western part of the world, from Egypt and its environment to Spain. Prior to the revolution of the Zohar in Spain, he brought it there. So that Rabbi Yitzhak Seginehor was blind. Who knows? Could be. Look at footnote for a second. Absorbed in her. What is he talking about over here? He's talking about... Where's the absorbed in her in my text? The ring, the fourth line from the bottom. Okay. Upon those absorbed in her. Right. What's her referring to? Torah. In Torah. See, Matt Zohar. Babylonian Talmud, Haggadah 12b. He said, whoever engages in Torah at night, must behold, except the three lines of light to love him during the day. Same concept. Why is Debshikish pushing this point of view? Because he wants Torah studied at night. Specifically at night. Because people were going to the movies at night. And they were not studying Torah at night. So this might have been... No, this is the second century. Second, first century. So they were going to the, to the Roman theaters, to the Roman, to the circuses. Could that not have been the innocent gestation of this comment? He's saying, people, what are you doing at night? After Shabbat finishes at five, where's everybody going? Why do you not have more people going to classes over here? They're going to, oh, that's a good idea. To the physical health part of it, right? So why not people going more to classes? So he wants to make the point. Why don't you at night? Extends a thread ray of love. The original word for love is going to death. Now our Zohar says not love but light, because the metaphor of light plays a very prominent role in all of Zohar teaching. Enlightenment, Zohar. The word Zohar means that which is bright. So that certainly is a very important metaphor. And because again, the sun, which was viewed as the most powerful of celestial bodies, 
shedding its light and heat and everything else. So the Zohar, of course, sees that as very powerful. With the light of the six days of creation, one could see from one end of the universe to the other. Where did God hide it? In the Torah. Who obtains the light hidden in the Torah can see one end of the world to the other. So the Basham talk adds another layer utilizing the earlier comments to create a new concept. Now that's an interesting model. The way that rabbinic literature or Jewish literature in general operates. You take an older idea you add a layer to it, come up with a new idea. The Baal Shem Tov is the 17th century. The light of the six days of creation, one could see from one end of the universe to the other. Where did God hide it? We said above the head in God Eden. Right? Garden of Eden. No. In the Torah itself. Both things the light hidden in the Torah can see from one end of the world to the other. What does he mean by that? Probably not physically see, but has a perspective as to what it all means. What does that mean? It means that in the Baal Shem Tov's life, there were momentous world events that were shaking the roots of society and civilization. And people ask, what does it all mean? So he used that as an opportunity for saying, if you want to say what it what all means, what do you do? Say Torah, and that will give you the perspective as to how to interpret all of these world cataclysmic events. Whatever it may have been. Who knows what he was referring to? Perhaps. According to another version of the statement, the lesson reads, so when I open the Zohar, I see the whole world perspective on what the whole world means. Compare the morning prayer, Lord of wonders, who renews His goodness every day continually the act of creation. So that's interesting. Okay, now, we have one more that I would like to read with you, which is Concealing and Revealing. I like this one a lot, so I will therefore show, share it with you. Some, same page, you have it? Oh, okay, good. Same page. Concealing and Revealing. You don't have the footnotes though, right? Okay, don't worry about it. Listen to this, very nice. When powerful light is concealed... Sorry, where's this from? Concealing and Revealing? It's um, page 194. Um, first passage, 194. 194. Charlie, did you take it from me? 194. The first passage is from Rabbi Moshe Kodovero, who was a very famous Kabbalist in Tzfat from the same generation of Yosef Cairo living and perhaps knew each other. He's a little bit old, an older contemporary of Rabbi Yosef Cairo in Tzfat. So this is where he said, Pradesh Munim, very famous work. Second passage from Shimon Lavi, who I don't know, 16th century, Kitim Paz, Habat Shalom, no clue. First paragraph. Now back to page 91. Creation. When powerful light is concealed and clothed in a garment, it is revealed. Though concealed, the light is actually revealed. For were it not concealed, it could not be revealed. Does that make any sense to anybody? Of course not. Right? Let's see how his analogy makes it perfectly clear. You will see his point in a second. Okay. If you want to use that analogy. I'm blown away by it. Okay. Here's a little bit better, I think. This is like wishing to gaze at the dazzling sun. Its dazzle conceals it. You cannot look at its overwhelming brilliance. Yet when you conceal it, looking at it through screens, sunglasses, you can see and not be harmed. So it is with emanation. By concealing and clothing itself, it reveals itself. Or, perhaps you might be saying, that when God created the world, His light or energy to be seen, to be fully absorbed to the world, it was put into what? Into the kelim. That's how, that's how God had to put it into the kelim. But what happened then afterwards? The kelim broke. Shavirat kelim, which is of course interesting. Okay, now, the last point we're going to make over here is, with the appearance of the light, the universe expanded. Now, I find that interesting. 
Where does he get the notion of expansion of universe from? No, this is the, this is the quote, not from the Zohar. This is from the 17th century Rabbi uh, Shimon Lavi, Ketan Paz. That's where this came from. <laughs> right. Where would this? Where does he? Why does he say that? Why would anybody in the 17th century, 16th century, to make a reference to the universe expanding? The universe was fixed for them. Nothing was expanding. Nothing was was moving, but not expanding. Up to the mid 20th century, nobody had the concept of an expanding universe. The universe in the 20th century was a very small, limited, finite. I mean, small, relatively small. If you read this tape, also shows what they thought about the universe in the 20th century. Einstein, everybody, till 1929 when they had the first telescope, seeing beyond, said, "Wow!" In 1930s, "Wow, wow!" And by, now it's even "Wow, wow, wow!" Wowist, and we haven't gotten to the end yet. So, I'm not saying anything. I didn't say that. What well, you think I said? A bit, I didn't say it. Throw that out as saying that implication here. I say that. But what's the implication? I'm not implying anything. Just what are you inferring? Is what I want to know. That's what I'm saying. That's interesting. Put whatever significance you want on it. Exactly. You put on now. I'd like to know. Oh, mine. What was that? My spin. With, yeah. What do you think? So, what do you think? He's bringing something out of left field. Right. Therefore, what? Therefore, what? Therefore, I want I, I choose to remain in wondrous amazement without coming to any conclusions yet. What? You're uncomfortable saying that there are those who had some kind of an intuition as to how things could have been done? No, I can't believe anybody in the 60th century thought about an expanding universe. Can't believe it. Can't be. Expanding universe? Imagination. No. They thought the universe, at that point, they thought the universe was still flat. I know what they thought. Oh. Saying intu- intuition. No, I'm just, one first should should just appreciate, just enjoy the sunset. Rambam in the beginning of uh, in, in Shmonet Kassim when he talks about the uh, levels of uh, what there's an analogy where there's a ship and there's a bird, and you put the two concepts together and you get an airplane. I don't know where that's from. I find it for you, but that somebody who puts the two concepts together. Okay. Yes, Rabbi Rakim. Good, good, but that's not what he's doing over here. He's, but that's what you're leading. He's, I'm not in any place. That's what you're leading. But why, why are you I'm, I'm your shit. Why are you uncomfortable that he's to be uncomfortable? Because Eli's here, that's why. <laughs> I want to tell to say that he's that intuitive. That not that you can't be intuitive about I agree. 21st, the 20th century concept a thousand years ago. Five hundred. I agree with you. Feel good. No, it doesn't. It doesn't feel good. I'm not saying. I'm not going that direction. People feel good that their literature um, foretells what was going to be discovered. Bible code. And I agree with you. I agree with you. Example of that. Of course, we, we're not. We're not there. We're not in that ballpark. We're really not. I'm not. You, maybe Sam is, but I'm not. And he's not either, really. No, I'm not. Why would you need to be false motives? I'm not going there at all. You know, I'm not that. I'm not going there at all. Okay. But be, but even though wait, no, right, wait a second. Even though I don't want to imply that you are you. I don't mean to use the word you. I shouldn't use that word as a pedagogue. But those who, of course, we don't want to Bible code this. That goes without saying. But, 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 
I'm behind you have to books in my office. I'm all in my office. Okay, I'm, I'm saying there are probably hundreds of books sure. on Zohar. Reading all kinds of different, very interesting things. Into it. you might not be so comfortable with. So not disagreeing. I don't disagree. Opening up no, I have no problem opening up boxes. I'll open up all boxes. What does? What does? I read the Quran. In a, I read in Arabic. What are you reading? The Quran actually does not. I don't. I don't think. I never. I never. I never found anything really Quraniac that I, that I was uncomfortable with. It's silly, most of it. But there are people today that expand on the Quran, showing the Quran. Yeah, that it something and it points to certain truths today, it points to something that you should do today, you probably wouldn't be so comfortable with what they're reading into. Agreed, so I'm not reading into this. This is what's here. I'm pointing out if it's here. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. But nor should one, because one is hypersensitive to what people are doing out there and, and Bible coding things, which we agree with you that one should not do so, nor should one not see what is manifestly evident. All I'm saying over here is that he's talking about the word universal said, I'm not going that path either. At all. We may be inexorably led to that path, to that conclusion. But if I'm going to go there, you're going to go with me. I'm not going to go alone there. Now, again, Sammy, you're right. Like he's coming from his... He has the ability to have the, the conception of what kind of creation do human beings see? Creation of a person. It's still hard to believe in expanding the in the 16th century. Why can't you apply that <clears throat> intuitively whether or not it's then or now? Just as a matter of creativity. I, we have to see the broader context. I'm not ruling it out. I'm not ruling it out. I don't want to... Of course. No, no, we agree. I'm not ruling it out. I'm ruling it in. But I'm not going necessarily saying because of that, therefore, I am religious. Well, I, agree <laughs> I agree with you. So we all agree with Eli. It's not, it's not necessary. What does Charlie have to say? Just make notes out of it. Why do you want to cover it up? Right. Yeah, I cover it up. I think... You don't want to attach a fantastic... What it implies uh, to you? Implication it, to it. Yes. Well, that's fine. But it's here. Yeah. I think that it, I think the fact that it's here is already fantastic. We don't have to spin it. Exactly. Right. Okay. I I I hear you. We could find the meaning of this if you were to get this book and get the scientific edition of it, of this book, sixth century. I don't have it. Ketem Paz. Published Havat Shalom, Jerusalem, 1981. If it's published as a scientific edition that a PhD person wrote about, you could find the answer to this question very simply. It might have been part of the cultural universe of his world of this notion of what Sammy's saying, intuitively or scientifically, not in the same way that we understand it. But that's possible. Whatever it may be, I just want to take note of it and that's it, and move on. One second. With the concealment of the light, the things that exist were created in all their variety. Interesting idea. A nuance, a twist. With concealment of the light, the things that exist were created in all variety. This is the secret of the act of creation. One who understands will understand. That's a maskili dom. Right. Whoever understands this, keep quiet. What do you mean by that? The secret of the act of creation. <laughs> well, that's, that's really it. Not all objective. <laughs> they all do. They all do. Whoever understands. No, he's saying over here. That the secret of the act of creation, right? Maskil Yidom. What's the secret of act of creation? That the concealment of the light. This is the opposite. The things were created in all their variety. So again, it's, it's, an, it's a striking statement. A footnote on page 91 doesn't tell us anything about this. Correct? Right. Right, right, right. 
which is interesting. Again, I'm not interested here, although one perhaps should, pursue this comment and find out exactly what it means. We're not going to worry about that. Rabbi, when you make reference to the world accepting the world, the universe, as being fixed, you're, you're making reference to the, the notion of the day, what was generally accepted. Yeah. That doesn't exclude the, the little voice that had the crazy ideas, because at that time... Of course you're right. No, no, don't, I don't disagree. Yeah, I'm, you're right. So, uh, just because science didn't come to the... Ex- Correct. ...on a grand scale Could be. accepting yeah. the middle of the 20th century what they've accepted... I don't want to rule out that nobody we agree. has the intuition, whether it be Jew, Gentile, or... or we agree. No, we, that's why I'm pointing it out. And Eli agrees with that as well. I don't know that he agrees with it. He does. We're not denying the sta- statement exists. So, raging from that, Charlie accepts that it exists. They spoke about atoms. It's sitting in the, the dark, ancient Greek, getting getting a bright flash of light, and then sitting in the dark again, and getting another blessing. So, so finally, a whole bunch Perhaps. of Perhaps. So light. you know what? You're, you, interestingly enough, Sammy and I are saying opposite things. Are you both away? You're saying opposite things. You're seeing, generally, this is an intuitive leap that all of a sudden somebody had this great, brilliant Nobody idea. Correct, but you're saying, Ellie's saying, no, the idea may have existed of an expanding universe that he just happened to have mentioned, picked up in the, in the environment, and he happened to have mentioned. It's exactly the opposite. We don't know. We could, we could find the answer. I happen to not be interested in the 16th century. I stopped at the 13th or 12th, to tell you the truth. It's true. I'm not a Renaissance person. I, don't, I, could, I had to just limit myself to one certain point. So I stopped at about the 12th, 13th century, after the Rambam, or Ben Abraham, I stopped. Especially not going to Europe. I was mainly in Egypt and, and places like that. So I really don't know, I don't even know what the cultural universe of this person is. You could read, for example, Moda Ainayim. Sorry? Right, so I didn't want to get into Elizabeth's stuff either. So I didn't. So, so, I, just, so I just stopped at that point. Right, so I, so I didn't go there. So, but I don't know what the cultural world said there. There's Moda Ainayim of Rabbi Azariah de Rossi, who was one of the most brilliant people of this period, who had a critical historical view of Tanakh and everything else. It was the first to ever write historically and critically of Tanakh. Very interesting. And he was a Renaissance person, and there's a whole literature around... A friend of mine wrote a speech on that. Uh, what's his name? So El Safran. So, and he published a book on all that. So one could read that and see what the ideas were at that time. So I'm just pointing it out. Right. Yeah. So that might, this might have been. Who knows? I guess we'll stop now. And we will just have about another five or six pages to read of this creation. And then we'll go back to Daniel Matt's book.